Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, welcome everyone to Optimal, the podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. I'm your host, along with Beth Allen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. Hey, Beth. Hi, hi. Well, we are delighted today to be joined by Dr. Uma Naidu, a medical doctor out of Harvard. She's the founder of the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the U.S. She's Harvard-trained nutrition expert, professional chef. She serves as the director of nutritional psychiatry at Mass General Hospital and is the author of the book, This Is Your Brain on Food. And her research is based on the impact our diet has on our mental and emotional health. Considered Harvard's food mood expert, Dr. Uma has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Goop, The Today Show, ABC News, and now Optimal, the podcast. Dr. Naidu, Dr. Uma, welcome to Optimal. Uh, super happy to have you with us. So maybe we could just dive right in here, talk about nutritional psychiatry, obviously the big focus of your book, uh, follows six pillars of using food as medicine for mental health. So maybe you could walk us through some of your work, some of your research, and just kind of introduce yourself to our audience. Great. Thank you for that welcome, and thanks for inviting me. You know, the idea of nutritional psychiatry, it's a more nascent subspecialty in psychiatry, but it is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve your mental well-being, while also using the very important tools like the appropriate medications being prescribed and or many forms of psychotherapy that I feel are very, very important for mental well-being. I came to this because of my own background and interest in nutrition, you know, understanding how food can be both healthy and delicious, but also the research that emerged over the gut-brain connection and ecosystem over the last two decades, even though Hippocrates nodded to this connection many eons ago. So practicing nutritional psychiatry is about being able to help individuals improve their mental fitness by the foods that they eat, excluding or cutting back on things that are not helping their mental health, and really finding the right precision medicine plan for them, which is really the direction we're going in now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So the six pillars that you follow, be whole, yes. eat whole is one of them, I believe. Yes. You just run through some of those sure. and then maybe we could kind of dive into a few of those. Sure. So outlined ways that we can think about nutritional psychiatry. One of them is eat whole, be whole. And here I like to use the example of eat the orange, which has the fiber, the nutrients, the micronutrients and everything that you need. And skip the store-bought orange juice because that usually has all the fiber removed and has a ton of added sugar. Mm -hmm. So it's that example of just eat that whole food when you can and skip the processed version of it. The next one is, is eat the rainbow, which is really about something we hear a lot of the time, but what people don't realize is that the different colors of plant foods, whether it's the anthocyanins from blueberries, the carotenoids from carrots, you know, the lycopene and tomatoes, all of these interact with gut microbes. 
and form positive breakdown substances. So it's not mm-hmm. just the color, it's the polyphenols that have a very important impact on our gut environment and the gut and brain are connected. So mm-hmm. they therefore do impact our overall health and overall, especially mental health, not something people realize. They also bring a biodiversity to the gut environment. And this is really important because you want a healthy gut microbiome in order to really function optimally because of this food-mood connection as well. Then another pillar is the greener, the better. Many, many decades ago, research was done on folate, vitamin B9, and that being associated low folate was associated with low mood. And some of my mentors at Mass General did some of this research quite some decades ago. Where I think this is significant is people don't realize that, now the studies were done using supplemental folates, folic acid, but Mm -hmm. what we don't realize is vitamin B9 is in leafy greens. And so just by adding several cups a day to our diet, and it's pretty easy to do because, you know, eating a leafy green salad is -hmm. something you can quite Mm -hmm. easily add as a main or side dish. That actually brings you the folate uh, that your body needs. And eating enough of it consistently could actually have a very positive impact, more than we may realize. Another pill is tapping into your body intelligence, which is, you know, I hear people talking about brain fog in the afternoon or slump where they need to go to the vending machine for a chocolate, a candy Mm. bar. But none of these individuals are actually linking it to the meal prior or what they've been eating for several days or several weeks. And that's really learning to tap into how a food makes you feel. Because if you're exhausted and feeling a slump, you know, it might be that you weren't eating fresh kind of energizing foods or versions of those that you were able to get. But, you know, the more processed, highly processed fast foods and other foods you're eating, that really affects your energy, your focus and your attention. And then the last two colors are consistency and balance are the key. This is where I talk about the 80-20 rule. You know, most of the Mm -hmm. time we try our best. None of us is a perfect eater, including myself. And, you know, there's that 20% of the time you may take your child to a birthday party and come across a cupcake. No harm in that. It's just you always want to think about this as balance, enjoyment, it's a sense of community. And so eating healthy most of the time, and then there are times that we have less control. And it's also important to enjoy those moments. And then the last pillar is really dedicated to the fact that anxiety disorders by at least three times And in fact, numbers have doubled after COVID in the U.S. Anxiety disorders are still the most common condition in the United States. And thinking about foods to really cut back on, so avoiding anxiety-triggering foods is the last pillar that we talk about. I'm always curious around, first of all, I love what you just talked about. I think it's obviously your focus is around food and mood and mental health. But I feel like we could be talking about anything here. We could be talking about adrenal health, thyroid. We could be talking about weight you, loss. You're I mean, absolutely right. It's it, a basic this, this principle. Is just a, yes. a way yeah. to live a balanced mm-hmm. life, correct? Yeah. And Sorry. I think balance can be such a hard word, right? Because it sort of means mm-hmm. different things to different people. But finding guidelines, I mean, I mm. consider the pillars to be guidelines that, you know, my focus and niches is, is nutritional psychiatry. So it's always about mental well-being. But these are guidances, you're absolutely right, about how you can live your life, you know, just in terms of finding finding a way forward. Because I feel like people get very caught up in what is balance, you know, and it can be very, it can be very discombobulating for people. 
And I think nutrition on its own can be so polarizing that we want to find the easy things that people can do. I would love to mention, I'm sorry. No, go for it, Beth. So when you mentioned folate and mental health and and some, you got to go back to basic nutrition, how the four D's of niacin deficiency, one of the D's was dementia. So dementia was a sign, yeah, a sign of niacin deficiency. I think a lot of, would you agree, some of the mental health imbalances we see could be micronutrient deficiencies. Lithium is an essential, is a mineral, is a trace element, really, that is so important to mental health. And I think that a lot of the things we see could very well be either exacerbated by or maybe even caused by micronutrient deficiencies. Would you agree or? I do see that in my practice. In relation to that, I think some of that arises from our food system as a whole and how it's evolved since industrialization. So the way that we consume foods that, say, our grandparents or great-grandparents did is very different to how we consume it now. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those deficiencies, you know, there's a place for fortified foods, but why are we doing that? You know, why aren't we actually eating the foods, Mm -hmm. the whole foods that contain those nutrients that we need? So I think that to some extent, it's always important to test and not guess and see what you may be deficient in. And there's definitely a connection there. But I also think this is, it starts with the problem in the food system being, you know, laden with high fructose corn syrup and, and sort of chemicals that we can no longer really mm-hmm. control as we do as best we can with organic and non-GMO products and produce. But the truth is it's in our system. And how do we walk ourselves back from that while really improving our mental well-being? That becomes the challenge. Yeah, we were talking on a podcast the other day, just sort of about the sort of adulteration of our food. So, so much of it comes out of a laboratory nowadays, as opposed (laughs) to out of the ground. And, you know, I don't think it becomes a socioeconomic thing as well, because obviously the cheaper food is, the more available it is to people that might not be able to afford organics. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you, and I'm just thinking mostly about this anxiety triggering foods, because if you look at a lot of those foods of commerce or those processed foods, the way that they make them shelf stable, the way that they make them available to people in boxes and things like that is through the adulteration of the food with chemicals. And I'm wondering, yes. you know, what do you do for patients that are in, in lower socioeconomic groups that maybe want to make changes like you're talking about, but for them, you know, eating a rainbow diet is difficult because how do you do that on a trimmed budget, so to speak? Because we are seeing that. Right. And, and I know that mental health yeah. is affecting every spectrum mm-hmm. of our society. But I think, yeah. yeah, I'm just curious about what your approach is for that. Yes, that's a good question. Because, you know, food apartheid exists in this country in many different places. Mm-hmm. And I work closely with the Feeding Change nonprofit organization around issues like this. But some of my guidances are, I think, it's an intervention around education or social media messaging and how we can educate and help that mother who has food stamps and who wants to fill, you know, her supermarket trolley with as many foods to feed her children, feed her family. Mm -hmm. And of course, what's front and center are the 10 boxes of something for a dollar or everything. It's all scaled to make it affordable, but these are often the worst foods. And she may not realize that because to her, it's how can I feed my family and make Mm -hmm. sure I get enough snacks and things for the school lunches and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So how do you prove that? One of my best examples is two things, actually. One is something I learned in culinary school, which is food costing. Mm -hmm. And here, this is where you offer education, and I do this in my clinic and in other places, 
compare the cost of uh, four, you know, meals at a fast food restaurant for a family of four or five, or even if she has two children, that comes with maybe the toy, the soda, or the milkshake compared to going to the local supermarket. Say she doesn't have a kitchen or she doesn't have an oven, buying a rotisserie chicken, because very often most supermarkets just cook the rotisserie chicken and the fat of the Mm. chicken itself. So it's not necessarily the worst option. And what it costs her to buy that chicken, have uh, create three or four meals over the next few days because the children are little, so they you know they can share that chicken over a few days. How can you teach her to repurpose it to feed them with an actual whole food and prove to her, which we've done, that it's uh, more cost effective than buying over those three or four days, you know, three or four of those fast food meals. So that's one way of kind of showing someone, taking them on a journey of how they can be eating differently. Another is how can you use the same budget you have and, you know, shop the center aisles for the separated produce, which we obviously would like them to be able to get, but maybe she's busy, you know, maybe that parent or caretaker is working two jobs, so she may not have time to, you know, clean the broccoli, steam the broccoli, but can you get frozen? Because in the United States, the frozen foods are flash frozen, so they're frozen Mm -hmm. at their peak. And they're excellent options as long as there's no added sauce or sugar syrup. So teach her to buy large bags of vegetables, which she can keep in the freezer, steam quite easily, and or saute and offer the children the side dishes. Then the center aisles have a ton of low-cost foods, which uh, you've been taught not to go to the center aisles because that's usually the processed foods. But there are also things like legumes, beans, lentils, canned salmon. You know, a side of salmon could be very costly, but and she have canned salmon, you know, canned sardines. These are great brain foods. These have omega-3 fats in them. Even dollar stores, by the way, I've checked this, have a lot of dollar stores keep canned salmon. So while it may not be the wild Alaskan salmon someone else may be able to eat, she can still feed her children with brain-friendly foods. You know, if we kind of explain, this is the breakdown of things you can do. And things like lentils and beans, gut-friendly, they're fiber-rich, they're nutrient-dense, and they're filling. So having a family have those foods as well become ways that you move them from the highly processed processed foods that are sold at low cost to other options, which, which they can also afford. You almost need a PSA, right? A public service announcement for everybody, right? Even people that can't afford things, they don't understand the basics of nutrition and how important it is to health. So if we could come up with a PSA, (laughs) wouldn't that be great? You're right about that. And I think, you know, one of the ways is to offer these educational points whenever you can in a respectful way, because people have different levels of access and it's really about offering more solutions to them. Exactly. Solve the problem, right? I know there is a problem. Right. We all recognize that. How do we solve right. it? We'll have to go up the blog post, Dr. Weatherby, a PSA okay. blog post. <laughs> yeah, blog post. It's interesting to me because, I mean, I'm a grandfather. I've got a, a six-year-old granddaughter and my next granddaughter is about to be born in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the little kids in my life, but I'm also mm-hmm. looking at my parents and my wife's mother has got Alzheimer's. So we've kind of got... Yeah. One, our stage of life is like we've got our obviously our children that we're we're taking care of still, and then we're looking over our shoulders at our parents, and then we're looking down the road <laughs> at our grandkids. Speaking of the little ones, I know that you've done a number of blog posts and writings around brain foods for kids. What would be kind of like if you were talking to me about my granddaughter and going, "Hey, you know, these are three phenomenal brain foods for children." What would those be? 
and people ask me this all the time, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, honestly, I don't think it's that simple. It's much right. more nuanced than that. But what I think the principles of feeding healthy kids are about are realizing that neuroplasticity is real and it's something mm-hmm. that is new as science. So even a child who may not be as fortunate and not have eaten healthy foods early on in their lives, by just adjusting that diet, we've been able to show that their brains can change and focus attention. Those types of things can change. So it goes back to those basic principles. Mm -hmm. If we were to narrow two foods, I'd want to make sure that they were eating a plant-rich diet. So they don't have to be vegetarian or plant-based, but having enough vegetables be introduced in their lives, tapping into things like the color of vegetables, Mm -hmm. making a sweet potato fries for them in an air fryer, having them really lean into leafy greens and blueberries and, and that type of thing. So I think definitely plant-rich. Another thing that I like to introduce to their foods early on because of the powerful antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties are things like spices, just gentle spices that flavor their food. You know, when you buy a pure spice blend, it's calorie-free and sugar-free, salt-free. So these are great ways to introduce flavor to their food. And then the third group would be clean sources of protein. Because I'm assuming, you know, healthy fats are being included in, say, the avocado is one of the fruit and vegetable, plant foods that they're choosing. But clean protein, so whether that's wild-caught salmon, or whether that's pasture-raised chicken, or maybe it's, it's organic non-GMO tofu, or a form of tofu that I make from chickpeas. You know, it's just ways that you can include clean proteins to their little bodies that are nurturing them, along with those veggies which have the fiber and the phytonutrients they need for their gut. And creating some kind of interesting meal that, you know, they really want to eat. Color helps, flavor helps as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, they used to make, right? Everybody used to make baby food from whatever was going to be served at the table. You pureed and gave it to the baby. And now everybody has to buy, has to be canned or bottled or specialty. And real food, we're talking about feeding them real food after each four to six months when they can eat. So it can be simple. (laughs) It's so funny because, you know, I find that newer parents, going back to that, and I do find this in uh, people reach out to me or the community that there are some younger parents who are just going back to, you know, pureeing the food that they're mm-hmm. eating for dinner, having the one piece of little equipment that they can bottle and, you know, and then supplementing when they say have to take the child out with mm-hmm. something that is stored by pureed. I really recommend them from doing that because it's, it's life is busy and, and you know, mm-hmm. taking that extra step really does make a difference. So you save money too. That, that might be an incentive. Yeah, that could be a great yeah. incentive as well. I realize it's actually much more cost effective to mm-hmm. puree health and, and it encourages you to help eat healthily, right? Because exactly. then you can puree the same for the kids. Exactly. Hmm. Dr. Weatherby, you're going to be busy. <laughs> I know. Well, it reminds me of kind of, you know. My, Better start now. <laughs> yeah. My son was born when I was a senior at Naturopathic College. And so <laughs> his mom and I definitely went down that road. Dr. Mm-hmm. Rumi, we were pureeing. Well, he didn't really have solid food for the first eight months. He was on breast milk. But 
Yeah, he was raised naturopathically. So was I, thank goodness. My mom was vegetarian from, you know, early 60s onwards and was very, very whole food conscious. So mm -hmm. we ate, she baked our own bread. We had no processed food in our house at all. So I feel very, very fortunate. It's only when I went to boarding school at the age of eight that I started to have to <laughs> eat, eat, eat just food? to kind I of survive. <laughs> It's all education too, right? It's all education. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you see the results. Absolutely. You see the results. I mean, I yes. think, you know, she was astonished by when we started going to school and obviously our friends would come home and they all had, you know, runny noses and coughs and colds and, and we were yeah. all hardy and healthy and spending most of our time running around outside and eating whole foods and mm -hmm. we were not on antibiotics. We were not vaccinated at that particular time. So. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had a, an upbringing like that. And I think it is sad in some ways that it takes something different to be able to do that nowadays. But maybe I'm just being silly. Here's a question for parents. Would mm -hmm. you feed your dog that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there's food people wouldn't even feed their dog that they do feed to their kids. So that to me would be Probably like the true. first question in an assessment. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, my really? mom always used to say that my dad's parents fed their dogs way better than they fed uh, themselves. <laughs> it's yeah, true, though. It is. It's true. Yeah, it's it true. But in the uh, interim before we got a recording around just sort of how do we potentially use, you know, biomarkers and blood biomarkers? Obviously, that's a big area of focus for me and our work. I'm curious, Dr. Umar, if there's, do you use blood testing in your practice? Yes. You know, I work in a team-based approach, so it's a tertiary care referral system. So often that set of labs may be done by the primary care physician or other referring specialist, but the short answer is yes. And are there any particular blood biomarkers that you focus on through this lens of nutritional psychiatry that you could maybe share with us some of your ways of looking at biomarkers from that perspective? You know, the direction I've gone in has been more precision medicine-based. So unlike, you know, even five or six years ago in my practice where more of the principles were general and recommendations were still more general, I've just found that the way that science has evolved is now a little bit more specific. So much it, it honestly depends on the patient. Some people don't require any tests at all, and others require a whole lot of testing at the beginning. And then there's the in-between group where you only test later on as you sort of discover through symptom and symptom management, you know, that they may potentially be deficient in something or mm -hmm. through their diet. So they get an assessment, though? Is there some kind of nutrition assessment, you know, yes, over time? So we do, yes, we do all of that at the beginning in our clinic once they've been referred. Great. And how would they get referred, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, sure. So it's a hospital-based clinic. So I get referrals from whether it's, you know, infectious medicine doctors to gastroenterologists to other colleagues of mine in the psychiatry department. So it's a large hospital system that I'm in and the referrals come to us for screening. We have a screening process because we don't want to be careful about active eating disorders, for example, mm, or someone yeah. with active, I mean, my Psychiatry colleagues know that, you know, uh, someone with active mania or active psychosis, or active suicidal ideation, food can always be the adjunct. But mm -hmm. we, you know, we want to make sure that individual is stable first. So yes, the referrals come, that's right, mm -hmm. the referrals come from within our system. You know, we often get calls from 
when if people see, you know, an article in CNBC, yeah. we just can't accommodate everyone, unfortunately, at the hospital right. because it is they require PCP or connection to where I'm based. But you have a training program too, I believe. Yes. So we've just released the first of its kind CME-based program for nutrition and mental health for healthcare professionals, including mental health professionals and CME-based. Mm-hmm. It is through the Mass General Psychiatry Academy and released on March 1st. So it's, the, you know, the first of its kind training program that will allow a certification in nutrition and mental health mm-hmm. from Mass General and Harvard to allow clinicians at least an introduction to how to use some of this methodology, and how to implement it in their practice, and how to really think about a patient through the lens of nutritional psychiatry. And so the whole idea here is growing the number of clinicians that we can that want to use this. And you don't have to be a psychiatrist or mental health professional. You can be an addictions doctor. You can be an internal medicine or lifestyle medicine doctor who wants to use this. So we're quite excited about that. And we hope that people continue to take advantage of it. Would it be open to other? Would it be open to registered dietitians or? So it is. It is open to, it's open to everyone in terms of clinicians. And we don't have CME credits for nutritionists and dietitians, but I am working on a program with a nutrition school to create a program. So for individuals outside of the U.S., Beth Allen doesn't really matter because they don't have to collect the credits for a lot of people within the U.S., they do value getting those uh, CME, certainly for doctors, CME credits. So the options for someone who is a nutritionist or registered dietitian within the U.S. is they can still take the program and get the certificate. They're able to get that. They just don't get the credits for their Mm -hmm. licensing. And then I'm working with the nutrition school and that program will be released later this year. And that's going to be designated to give nutritionists and dietitians credits for their professional training as well. And how do we find out about this program? Do you have a website? Oh, the Mass General program yeah. is on the, yes, Mass General Academy website, and I can email it to your team so you have the link for your show yeah, notes. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. And then I will we'll certainly on social media share the new course that's coming out in, in the spring. Awesome. Anything else that you're doing? I know you've got your book, This Is Your Brain on Food. So I'm sure that's available on Amazon. So if anybody's interested in getting a copy of that, please do pop over to Amazon and get yourself a copy. Or if there are other other better ways of getting hold mm-hmm. of it, Dr. Uma. Is there anything Thank that you. you're yeah. currently working on? Or The big exciting thing has been the program that we're releasing. The second thing is that we love for people to follow the work. So please go to my website, umanaidumd.com, and sign up for my newsletter. Because through my newsletter, you hear about all my new activities, my new programs, my current media that I've written, and that way you're up to date and it's all in one place. So a lot of our followers actually bookmark them and then save them in a folder. So every week I talk about a different food. Last week it was coffee. So we mm-hmm. break down you know, the mental health benefits, the pros and cons, how to purchase an ingredient or nutrient and so I'd love for people to do that. Please do check out my program at Mass General. We will send you the link for that. And follow me on social media, which is at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. And, you know, support your local bookseller or go to an <laughs> online retailer and buy the book. I would love to get your support on that. This is your brain on food. Has really become a guide for people interested in learning more about nutritional psychiatry and I'd be honored if you support it.
Absolutely. So please go ahead and get yourselves a copy. Beth Allen, is there anything else that you want to dive into before we wrap this up? Well, no, I mean, just thank you for bringing this to the forefront and to light, because I know I think we're all kind of in the same boat with preventive medicine, and we understand this, but there's so many people out there that don't put the two and two together, and especially for mental health. So no, thank you for sharing that with us and shedding the light on it. And hopefully we can do some follow-ups with some blog posts and keep the highlight on nutrition for mental health, because it is a missing pillar for most people. And hopefully this will fill in the blanks for them. I would love that, you know, offer blog posts to a lot of places because it's a way to get the message yeah. to people. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. even the point is, and great questions you asked, Dr. Weatherby, about, you know, access and how do we make brain foods accessible even mm -hmm. on a budget? I think that's something that people are really interested in these days. So you let me know and I'm happy to work on that for you. Well, that's awesome. wonderful. We would love to have you be a guest blog writer for us, if that's something that would be of interest. So Dr. Uma, thank you for your time. If you wanted to find out more about Dr. Uma's work, go to umanaidumd.com. We will have links underneath of this. We'll have links to her book. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. And again, I want to reiterate what Beth Allen said. You know, Thank you so much for shining a light on a very missing pillar in preventative medicine. So I appreciate that very much. I appreciate your time. So this thank is you, Dr. Weatherby. Thank you very much for listening to Optimal. We will be back soon with a, another guest. Until then, stay optimal and thanks for listening.